and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your listening device where we will talk about all things science-y. My name is Stu and with me on the show this week I have Claire. Hello, Stu. And what have you brought in for us this week, Claire? So, Stu, you know there are some animals that everyone's that everyone loves. They're furry, they're warm-blooded, sometimes you can cuddle them. And then there are some animals that don't get a lot of love at all. Yeah, a lot of underappreciated animals in the world. Yeah, indeed, like the invertebrates that you um, had an interview about two weeks ago. Um, yes. Well, I have taken that in a different direction and um, had, had thought about... A group, I mean, it's a really large group of animals. This is fish. Thinking about fish and why we don't have the same sort of level of empathy and sort of um, just understanding and interest in fish as we do for other types of animals. Um, When really the science is showing that fish, there are a lot of similarities between humans and fish and more from in the sort of like, you know, mental capabilities um, than we, we probably realise. So I'm going to be taking you through a little bit of the research surrounding uh, how humans and fish are more alike than we care to acknowledge. A, um, a deep dive, so to speak. Indeed. And also with us this week is Chris... Yes, speaking of people who are a bit like a fish. Hello. Um, I Look, I'm also comparing animals to humans this week. <gasps> Is it a double creature feature? It could be a double creature feature. We've, we haven't got the budget for a triple creature feature at the moment. <laughs> look, we, 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 we may well come off second best if you start comparing animals to humans. So what, what exactly is your angle here? Okay, I'm going to be talking about a small rodent called the creeping vole. So far, so good. Yeah. Creeping uh, vole doesn't sound like the most appealing creature uh, it's, on the earth. It's, look, it's, it's a cute little, you know, furry animal. But it's, um, this... I, I do think I've met a few people who you could describe as creeping voles. <laughs> there you go. Now, this, this creature, look, it, you probably heard some stories um, over the years and some rumours that the, the Y chromosome, the human Y chromosome, could be going extinct. Mm. Um, now, this may or may not be an imminent threat to our um, reproductive existence, but the creeping vole um, could be showing us the way of what the, um, you know, a possible, a possible alternative scenario that we could explore. Wow, so so the creeping vole is is a, a potential vision of the future of humanity. <laughs> well, that is pretty amazing stuff there. Let's see if if the reality holds up to the to the promise there, Chris. So stay tuned for those stories later in the show.
Thank you. So, in 2017, Australian Professor Jenny Graves was awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for Science for her work on the genetics of sex, which includes the discovery that the human Y chromosome is disappearing. Where is it disappearing to? How, how does the Y chromosome disappear? It's just kind of disintegrating. Stu, it's, it's falling to pieces. It's getting filled with junk DNA and just getting smaller in size and... You know, we've all been there. I'll just remind you of the basics, like in the the human kind of genetical system. The we have the the two sex chromosomes is the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. Um, the combination of two X chromosomes at XX is female, XY is male, um, from a biological sex point of view. But the um the Y chromosome is it's not it doesn't hang up hold up next to the X chromosome. Let's be honest, it's it's tiny. Um. So what it does, basically, it basically carries the genes for making males and little else. Um, its genes you know, drive the formation of the testes at about 12 weeks of gestation, and which then produce male hormones and then that leads to all the other um, assorted consequences and problems. So from an evolutionary point of view, the Y chromosome looks like it started as similar to the X chromosome, um, except the difference it had this this um, region they call SRY, SRY, which is the sex determining region Y. Now the trouble is that the way it works with um, males having one Y chromosome um, and females having two X chromosomes is that there's only ever one of these Y chromosomes around. So normally when chromosomes are paired, they can do something called recombination where they swap genes, um, and also the fact that you have two two chromosomes means that you have a backup in case there are there are mutations mm. you can evolution can select against any mistakes mm. you can switch certain parts of one chromosome on and certain parts off yeah but you can fix mistakes as well and you can or yeah, you can select yeah. away from mistakes um yeah. and the white chromosome has no backup and what's worse it is actually produced in a part of the body that is kind of prone to having more mutations and you know there are a lot of sperm produced very you know, very rapidly there's going to be more mm-hmm. mutations so the quality of the white chromosome then degrades over time there's no process for really um improving it it's just going to you know, just basically it's just entropy it's just everything falling apart as the universe does and then basically what you're saying is there's no quality control so it's all just going out the window that's right so hang on hang on but but if isn't there a selection towards um a certain quality of y chromosome because you've got a sperm that's got a healthy y chromosome yes yeah. you know eventually successful Totally. If you have, if you have um, unsuccessful, well, I mean, if, if you know, if you take the consideration that without a Y chromosome, you you couldn't have males at all, then um, and you need males to reproduce, then obviously there is certain evolutionary pressure to protect for good Y chromosomes. But the point is that there is no mechanism to improve the Y chromosome mm, um, right. and yeah. the sort of the arrow of the yeah, arrow is pointing in one direction primarily. Um, and it's just the way it has, this has been observed. The degradation of the chromosome has been observed. This is what um, Jenny Craig's work was in 2002. She published a paper that looked at the rate that it was degrading and with a, had a rough calculation that at the current rate, it would be gone in about four and a half million years. I mean, okay, that's that's not right around the corner. That's not right around the corner. So you know, and when you, the Homo sapiens as a species hasn't been around that long, really. So you know, four and a half million years, yeah, is is a fair while. Um, 
but yeah, as I said, we do kind of depend on having males for re- reproduction, really. Um, but there's yeah, there's some there is some ways it is protected, uh, um, just simply by evolutionary evolutionary pressure. Um, they have since measured more the rate of the degradation, and that thing shown it hasn't been uniform over time. So compare our Y chromosome to our evolutionary relatives, and you can see that it has kind of slowed the degradation over recent history. Uh, recent prehistory and so it seems that maybe it's just being whittled down to the essential genes which then by evolutionary pressure are harder to get rid of simply because you can't succeed without them but look there's nothing to say that it can't disappear entirely because um this has happened before in other animals and to quote um uh, professor ian malcolm life uh finds a way one of Not- my favorite quotes about about life yeah. to be honest yeah also not a real professor. No, no, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, sexual reproduction obviously is very common in in the the world of life, uh, very widespread. But it's done in different ways. Um, if you look at animals in particular, invertebrates in particular, they, there's a there's a big variation. So, as discussed, you know, we have we and many other animals have the the XX and XY arrangement, um, but birds and snakes have the opposite system. Uh, males uh, have two Z chromosomes. And females have a Z and a W. So they kind of switched it around. Uh, and then there are, you know, some reptiles and fish where this, where sex isn't genetically fixed at all, but it changes according to things in the environment, such as the temperature. So, yeah, there is a, there's a different ways of solving this problem of making sure you still have um, sexual reproduction. Uh, but as I said, mammals are usually XXX. XX and XY, but there are a couple of exceptions, which is, brings me to the creeping vole. Sorry, there was a... Oh, that's the exceptions. Exceptions, yeah. The creeping vole, Microtus oregoni, sometimes known as the Oregon Meadow Mouse, which probably is a better name than the um, creeping <laughs> vole. The Oregon Meadow it sa- Mouse. It sounds, <clears throat> it sounds a lot more, you know, it sounds a lot more pleasant. Yeah. So the, the Oregon meadow mouse. meadow mouse compared to the creeping vole. Yeah, it sounds okay. like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde situation. But it's technically a vole, not a mouse, I guess. <laughs> and it's one well, of those. Why- it ain't this fooling is- anyone. <laughs> but this is also why we don't rely on common names for biological <laughs> identification. Fair enough, yeah. So yeah, um, Microtus oregoni, the, the creeping vole, the Oregon meadow mouse, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's not a large animal. It's only about 14 centimetres in length, weighs about 19 grams. Um, yeah, get your fingers out and sort of measure that. But what's unusual, about 50 years ago, they discovered something unusual about it, which was that um, female creeping voles only have one X chromosome. So they call this arrangement X0. So instead of XX, it's just X0 to indicate that there is no other one. Um, and when the males appear to still have an XY, but a new paper published in the journal Science has thrown some light on how it's not exactly a normal XY arrangement. Because what they've done is they sequenced the genes on the, on the sex chromosomes for the creeping vole, the Oregon meadow mouse, and they found that the Y chromosome is essentially just another X chromosome that has taken on some male-determining genes from an older Y chromosome that has now disappeared. Right. So this was a completely separate event? Yeah. So basically... Evolutionary speaking? Yeah. So they had a Y chromosome similar to us, to ours, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, most of, the, most of their, X chrom- their, their current Y chromosome is just an X chromosome, but it's picked up 
some sort of ancestral Y chromosome. And in fact, the other X chromosome has also got some vestiges of that old Y chromosome as well. So there has been some gene swapping between the old Y chromosome. Basically, it's saved its bits. It's like transferred across to the X chromosome. Yeah. And do they know when this happened? I haven't been able to find that out um from the from the full paper but um they the y chromosome the new y chromosome is already showing some signs of degeneration and acting like a proper y chromosome so essentially we have seen essentially a new y chromosome evolving from an x chromosome um now it doesn't appear to be an ideal situation because did talk about how the problem is with the y chromosome is that it degrades because there's only one of it um the fact now they really only have one x chromosome whether you're male or female Seems like it's a problem as well. There's no protection for the X mm. chromosome either. But um, look, I think this has shown us that this kind of arrangement has some flexibility. So, you know, maybe they'll figure out, you know, evolution will get around this this current conundrum. Um, but look, it's an interesting thing. So what I'm trying to say is that if our, if our Y chromosome does continue to gradually degrade over time, maybe creeping evolution can get us out of it. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. animals in the world that humans seem to have an innate connection with we see similarities with them they're normally pretty charismatic species like elephants and chimpanzees they've got warm blood uh you know they're normally highly intelligent we see ourselves in them and we develop an emotional attachment leading to empathy and caring about their welfare and the survival of their species But there are many more animals in this world that we are less likely to fall in love with. And today I am going to maybe less, yeah, maybe offer you a a point of view or a bit of an argument about why we should love fish a bit more. (laughs) Focusing on fish, why fish are important, why they're a bit more lovable from the sense of they're a bit more similar to us. Is this just a random choice? Like, why did you choose fish? Well, I read a conversation piece recently about it and it was it was it was quite interesting. There was there's so much science out there to do with uh fish uh mental capacity and behavior that I really didn't know. So I just wanted to share it. So it wasn't it wasn't just that you you caught up with finding Nemo or something like that and <laughs> caught up with Nemo? Yeah, just <laughs> It wasn't, no. but if Nemo's out there, 
Let me know. I'd love to hang. <laughs> uh, so I think when we categorize fish, oh, hang on. Oh, yeah. so so fish seem pretty alien. You know, they they leave us cold. You know, we 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 talk about a wet fish for crying out loud. And even though we have an evolutionary link to these animals, they're so far from humans on a physiological and anatomical and I guess, you know, geographical scale that it's hard for us to see similarities. And But I think when we categorise fish in this way, we lose, we lose understanding um, and detail in how fish live, what their social life looks like, and what they're really capable of. So um, let's talk a bit about fish. Um, I'm going to take you away from thinking about, you know, your battered fish and chips on the plate at the pub later on this week to some more uh, recent research about fish that highlights our similarities rather than our differences. So similarity number one, as fish get older, they lose their memory, just like we do. Turns out fish don't have a three-second memory also. I was going to say, um, does their memory go down for three seconds to two seconds? That- <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, yeah, so fish fish have a, have a longer memory than we uh, give them credit for. Um, and as we are all painfully aware, when humans age, our memories decline. Specifically, our working memory and the mental processes that we use every day to um, carry out our tasks these decline as as we get older. So researchers from the University of Plymouth have found something similar with zebrafish. Um, And if you didn't know, zebrafish are a little striped aquarium fish. They're native to Southeast Asia, but they also happen to be, I guess, the fish version of a lab rat. Everyone who needs to use a fish in the lab ends up using a zebrafish. So they're really well described. Um, And anyway, the scientists took two age groups of zebrafish they took young ones at six months old and older ones um, who were around 24 months old and challenged them to get through a a maze now they found that the older fish struggled to navigate struggled to navigate the maze compared to the younger ones and um and i mean anyone who's you know gone out with elderly parents to a to a, um, a shopping centre that they're not familiar with would understand this sort of conundrum. It's it's a lot easier to find your way out than it is for your um, elderly parents to do so. Now, um, to back this study up, the researchers also designed a virtual version of this task for humans um, and found that people in their 70s showed exactly the same deficits in this area and got as um, as fish did, so you know that's something we can bond over. We both lose our memories as we get older. All right, now <laughs> interesting similarity number two, and I have to say there's a trigger warning with this next section as um, it does talk about illicit drugs, because that's right, fish like uh, the same drugs as humans. Interestingly, so biologists from Harvard universities. Uh, in the U.S. found that zebrafish really love cocaine. Now, <laughs> How do they snort it? Like, I mean, it seems like it would dissolve in the water. I think it might be dissolving and getting through the gills. I mean, they might, they, they might take it differently, but they love it nonetheless. So 
This was discovered while investigating the um, the researchers were investigating the molecular basis of addiction, and they were using zebrafish as a model to do this. Um, so they dangled cocaine in the fish tank, and um, where the like fish hung bag. out around. <laughs> Maybe they did. So they dangled it where um, where fish normally hang out in a certain visual pattern, and um, interestingly. Fish that had, you know, been treated with cocaine, so to speak, um, the 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 article that details this um, describes their movement and how they act afterwards, which is quite hilarious, um, if you'll allow me. So apparently they typically display slow circling with fins more or less extended, indicating arousal. And then small groups of fish um, who are cocaine-induced have a striking increase in aggressive behavior marked by dominance displays and chasing. So that's what a um, cooked up fish looks like, if anybody out there was wondering. Fish that enjoyed the drug passed it along to um, their children and they also had a preference for it, which interestingly is a pattern reported in humans as well. So so what you're saying is that, the, that, that some of the fish, only only some of the fish went for the went for the cocaine and then those fish had offspring and those offspring also were were attracted to the cocaine but other fish of the same in the same experiment weren't attracted and their offspring weren't attracted yeah i'm i'm not quite sure if there was a link between offspring of the not attracted cocaine but like of not being attracted to, to cocaine, but the ones who were attracted to it had a higher incidence of um, their offspring being attracted to cocaine. So I don't know if I don't know if the the converse was uh, was was detailed as also. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting to see. Um, also, cocaine doesn't seem to be the only preferred drug for zebrafish. Uh, opiate stimulants, alcohol, and nicotine. Um, were all taken up by zebrafish and they loved them. Everything except THC, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in, in cannabis, um, was was taken up by zebrafish, which is quite, quite interesting from a molecular level. Um, also, fish are extremely sociable. This is number three similarities. As you can probably tell from their schooling behaviours, they love hanging out in a group and can synchronise their behaviour in schools so that, you know, that individuals mirror the movements of their neighbours. But more interestingly, although we think all fish look the same, individual fish within a species, they can recognise other fish from uh, from their own group. So they, they do this mostly during... They do this mostly through smell, so they can they can recognise their family in their own group, and research suggests that young fish prefer their own relatives. So when you're young, you want to stay close by people that you know, but as they get older, adult females prefer females that they know, but prefer males that they don't know. So this helps to prevent uh, prevent in, inbreeding in fish. Now, my last, the last sort of similarity and something that's, that I won't go into too much here because it probably deserves its own story um, 
uh, and and maybe a discussion with a fish neuroscientist, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that fish can feel pain. Uh, and from what we know since 2003, um, there have been studies, uh, been a whole bunch of studies that show, um, so biologists have put, there's one famous study, I guess, from 2003 where biologists put acid on the lips of trout and um, these trout then showed classic pain responses. You know, they were moving away, they're rubbing their lips, they're going to the bottom of the tank, um, they're increasing their respiration. And then these responses disappeared completely once the fish were given a painkiller. So from that sort of uh, groundbreaking research, um, the researchers then focused on, well, if, you know, they may be experiencing pain, um, but how do they sort of experience pain? What is the sort of, um, what does pain mean to a fish? Um, is it, it's not just the perception of a physical event, but, you know, but it's often an emotional experience as well. Um now, some researchers think fish aren't mentally capable of having an emotional response to pain um, and their pain shouldn't concern us, uh, but, and, and, you know, think that because fat fish lack parts of the brain that in humans and other higher vertebrates are associated with the mental experience of pain. But more and more research shows that, you know, there are different shapes and sizes and organizations of brains that exist in nature. And a lot of complex behaviors arise in animals that, that have these different brain structures. Um, and, and they're, even though they might be very different to humans and other primates, um, uh, they, they still have, they still have these behavioral outcomes. So in fact, it seems like brain structures themselves may be less important than we thought. Mm. Um, so there you go. That's, Hopefully this story. Oh, I guess, no, that's, that's interesting. It's, um, you know, looking at fish, I guess, in a whole new light, really. I mean, it's, uh, we assume they're such simple creatures, but they're capable of a lot more. I mean, zebrafish at least. Zebrafish at least. Um, and yeah, zebrafish obviously, um, just one of many, many species and a lot more has to be done in this um, in this space. But it definitely makes you think quite quite differently about, um, you know, what's happening uh, in the rivers and the lakes and, and our oceans. So hopefully this story has not left you cold like a wet fish. But if you want more information, there's a great article authored by Matt Parker from the University of Plymouth on the Conversation website. And I guess I will finish there. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get... Locked, locked in, in Science! science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.